Oh, Jesus, I thank you for hectic days. And I thank you so much for your word and that your word always speaks to us and that your word reveals to us who you are. And Jesus, I thank you that you are the perfect revelation of the Father and that um, that you love to speak to us. And so I just pray, Jesus, that through all of this, what seems to me like a bunch of jumbled information, would you just speak your truth? And would you transform our hearts? And I pray that you would make this truth go down into the deepest part of our spirits and that, um, that you would just have your way with every single one of us tonight, however that is supposed to look like, however you're wanting to move, would you just work and have your way in the name of Jesus? Amen. Okay, so I had a thought before I prayed, and then it went away. Um, but one of the things, um, so before I get into it, Jesus being our high priest <clears throat> is going to have like a ton of information but as I was going through this, and I've been studying a lot about it the past couple weeks, um, the Lord just kept putting on my heart that even though it's a lot of, like, information, that Jesus's goal is always intimacy and relationship with him. And so if it does seem like a lot of information, I'm hoping that you guys can, like, take it and then just try to dig in and I'm trying to share as much of it as I can with you but really just try to see like okay so if this equals this then that means this is what God's heart looks like and the whole reason why um Jesus came to the earth was so that we could have life and have life abundantly and life John 17:3 says that life is knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent so life is all about knowing him, and it's this relational knowing him. So um, as we go into that, just I want that, like, tucked into our minds um, because it's a lot of really cool stuff. And it was really interesting that um, you girls dance the Feast of Tabernacles was this week. And I even heard the name, like, Feast of Tabernacles. And then when we went, I was like, oh, wait, that's what that means, of course. And it's the same week that I'm teaching on Jesus being our high priest. So I thought it was a really cool Jesus thing. Oh, and then since then, I've been listening to all of these really, really old Hosanna integrity songs that we did when I was, like, a little girl. And it's been good. Yes, we do. Okay. So we are going to start big. If we're going to talk about the high priest, well, first, if we're going to talk about Jesus being our high priest, we have to understand the role of the high priest. And it's very closely connected to the temple. So most diagrams of the temple are really hard to read. This was like the most clear one. So if you guys can just follow it, however, I know it's probably hard to read from back there. But everything out here and up is the outer court, and that's where women were allowed to be. Then you go up those steps, and you have the upper court with this huge altar, the molten sea, and all of these lavers and basins. And men were allowed to go into the inner or upper court. Then you had this huge veil well, they say there's two veils. It may have only been in the tabernacle. I can't remember. Um, but only priests were allowed into the holy place. And you have the tables of showbread in the holy place. And you have the altar of incense. So all the sacrifices would happen out here where the men were allowed. But then the priests would take the blood of the sacrifices and bring it into the holy place. And they would offer incense at the altar of incense. And it was right it doesn't actually look right in front of but it was really like right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies and it's interesting if you read in hebrews hebrews the author of hebrews actually says that the altar of incense is in the holy of holies but i think that's because he's talking about post cross where there's no veil and so that's how closely connected our prayers are because it says that the, um, the incense is the prayers of the saints. 
So then you have this veil. And I was actually teaching the Sunday school kids about it. You know, these like five-year-olds, and I'm trying to explain the Holy of Holies and the veil and stuff. And we actually have no idea how thick the veil was. We know it was thick enough so that you could not possibly see through it. But the main reason why it was so impressive that the veil tore at the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, and then there was the big earthquake, and then the veil tore. The reason it was so impressive is because the veil was, I'm about to get this number wrong. It was either 20 or 30. Both numbers are really impressive, though. But 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So 20 cubits high, 20 cubits wide. It may have been 30. I can't remember. Either one, it would have been either 30 feet or 45 feet. I think it was the 20 cubits, because I think it was 30 feet. So it's 30 feet high, which is at least twice as high as the ceiling here. And it literally tore from the top to the bottom. So no man could ever reach that high because there's not like steps at the veil. And the veil was meant to separate the Holy of Holies or the most holy place from everything else because that's where the very presence of God resided. And the presence of God is always surrounded by cherubim. Most of the time it's four if you read Ezekiel and Revelation. And so on top of the ark, you had these two cherubim, and their wings were like this. No idea what their hands were doing. And then you had two cherubim in the back, and their wings were like this. And one wing would touch the wall, and one wing would touch the other cherubim's wing, and then it would go like this. So each wing was five cubits, which is seven and a half feet. <clears throat> so you have these, like, huge cherubim in the Holy of Holies. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant, which was completely overlaid with gold. And you have the cherubim on top going like this. And the wings that on top that would be like this and the other side like this made a seat for the Lord. And that was called the mercy seat. So why are we talking about the temple? Kind of weird, right? But all the details are so cool because they're all a picture they're all a copy, as Hebrew says. They're all a shadow of the real thing. In heaven, in Revelation, if you read it, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, um, you see the four living creatures who are actually cherubim. And you see, and, and they're, they're surrounding the throne of God. What's so cool about studying the holy place? I've loved thinking about it ever since I was a little kid. Um before I was actually even a Christian. Because I loved just thinking about like how serious it was, the very presence of Yahweh, and how serious it was to be in that presence. And how, um, like I, I remember being a teenager and reading about Manasseh and how he would bring these horrible shrines where they would do horrible things with the shrines into the most holy place. And it just broke my heart and I was like, like, I remember crying in my quiet times and just being like, I can't imagine that they would do something like that in the very presence of God. And then God is like, that's what it is when you have an idol in your heart, right? We're bringing a shrine into the very presence of God, into the very throne room of God, which is our hearts. And so I, I want to make a big emphasis on the most holy place because only one person was allowed to enter it once a year on the Day of Atonement, and that was the high priest. So that's where we're going. The high priest was allowed to enter it one day a year to make sacrifice. Are you serious? Ah, that is so cool. Today is the Day of Atonement. Oh, my goodness. That's really random or not random at all. Um... And so we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement at the end because to me it's like the coolest thing. And there's so many pictures about Jesus when we talk about the Day of Atonement. So that is the temple. And these, this is the high priest's garments. And I'm going to talk about them really quick because they're actually really important. And they display a picture of Christ. So you have... I mean, and I, I don't have time to talk about all of it, so I'm really just going to pick, like, a few pieces. But 
general, you have the turban, you have the gold plate that says holy to the Lord, which is what I have on my ring. Um, and I love it. You had the white tunic, and then you had a blue robe that covered it, and the blue robe had bells and pomegranates. Not real pomegranates, like fabric and sewn and yeah. Pomegranates at the bottom of the robe. So he was probably really loud when he walked. Then you had the ephod, which is this bright colored tunic right here. And it was blue and scarlet and gold. And if you notice, like anything that has to do with the presence of God, it's always blue, scarlet, and gold. And what was the color of Jesus when he was dying on the cross? Covered in bruises and covered in blood. So just always think about that. Um, then you have the breast piece. And, on, and that's the square up there. And it actually was this rectangle that they would fold up. So it almost made like a little pocket. And on top of it was the 12 stones, all different gemstones, with the names of the tribes of Israel, one on each one. And then the, um, the ephod was tied together on the shoulders with these two onyx stones. And on the onyx stones were written the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's like, okay, that's really random. Cool. But God always has an amazing picture for these. And the reason that the breast piece was um, like a pocket is because the Urim and the Thummim would go inside. And those were supposed to reveal the heart of God. It would, the Israelites would ask God questions. And were not, the Bible doesn't actually say how he would speak through the stones, but somehow he did. Some people think that like, one of the stones, either the Urim or the Thummim, would get hot, or maybe they would use them to cast lots. We're not really sure, but God spoke through those, and only the high priest was allowed to have them. And so those were kept in the breast piece. But the really interesting thing, oh, I guess I'm going to talk about that later. Never mind. So anyway, that is the garment that the high priest would wear every time he went into the temple except for one day. On the Day of Atonement, he did not wear that. Do you guys want to know why? I'm not going to tell you yet. So <clears throat> there were two main duties of the high priest. And again, the whole time that we're talking about this, I know it's a lot of information. I want you to just keep on thinking, like, I'm going to try to tell you how this reveals Jesus but try to think about it and meditate on it as we're talking. And if you guys, there's a ton of scripture, so you can write it all down because I don't have time to read it all. Like, we're not reading all of Leviticus 16 and 23, even though that's what, like, I've been studying a lot. Um, so number one, he would oversee other priests. High priests. Get it? Like, he's the head, the high priest so that makes you know like there were lots of priests and only one high priest and so he would oversee the other priests and how does that reveal Jesus and first Peter 2 9 and 10 is talking about us he's talking about the saints of Christ and he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so I just think it's interesting that <clears throat> the second part of what the priests, and technically all of priests were supposed to do this, but the high priest was the one who truly revealed the second part of being a mediator between God and man. Now, all priests would perform sacrifices, and that was being a mediator between God and man. But it was the high priest, again, only, who would go into the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest only who had the Urim and the Thummim. And so we get to be a royal priesthood. And we talked about God, about Jesus being our king a few weeks ago, and that was really cool to think about. 
But another thing to think about is that we are a priesthood. We are a mediator now between God and man. We now intercede on behalf of other people to God. We now speak on God's behalf to man by sharing the gospel with him. And the head of all of us is Christ. So he is our high priest overseeing us, and we get to walk in his footsteps, which I just think is really awesome. So, as I said, the second part of the high priest's duties was being a mediator between God and man, revealing God's heart and will to man by, again, you know, he, um, the, sometimes they would want to know, Lord, should we go out to battle? And speaking through the Urim and the Thummim, again, the stones, which I have no idea how they worked, but God would say yes or no. And whenever they wanted to know the will of God in a really big situation, they would ask him through the Urim and the Thummim, and he would speak. And then, of course, you have the whole, when Saul was really rebellious and God wouldn't speak through the Urim and the Thummim because Saul was being so evil, so then Saul decided to like go see a sorceress and blah, blah, blah. So, but most of the time, that is how God would speak to his people. Um, to, and he would also speak through his prophets, but there was just a really special role that the high priest had with that. Then also, the high priest would intercede on behalf of man. And the word intercede is really important because a lot of times we just think of it as it's just really intense prayer. But it's a lot more than just being intense prayer. Intercede literally means, well, the Hebrew word, in the Old Testament that we translate as intercede, it literally means to stand in the gap. So you are standing in the gap for someone. If someone has holes in their walls where they have a lack of faith, interceding for them is literally standing in the gap of their lack before God and interceding for them. It is, you know what, you have a weakness right now and I'm going to stand in the gap for you so that the devil can't attack you. I'm going to stand in the gap for you so that you can walk in the blessings of God. That is what intercession is. It's literally having God's heart for someone and God's heart for a situation. And it is not, you know, just this, oh, Jesus, bless us. But it's this powerful and intense way that God reveals his heart to people by us interceding on behalf of man before God. And so that's what the high priest would do um, during the Day of Atonement, I'm sure during other times. Um, and actually one of the um, one of the ways that uh, one of the ways that he would do it, <clears throat> so again, revealing God's heart to man, we talked about the Urim oh, typo. It's not it's not tummim. It's it has nothing to do with your tummy. It's thummim. Um, thummin. There's an H that's supposed to be there. I may or may not have been writing this like while I was on conference calls and trying to listen to something and also type stuff at the same time. So we'll see. But I actually I think I want to jump. Oh, never mind. Okay. So Revealing God's heart to man, you had the high priest in the Old Testament who the Israelites would ask questions of, like, is this what God wants us to do? Is this what God wants us to do? And then came Jesus, who was the perfect representation of the Father, who was the exact representation and the exact, I can't remember how Hebrew says it, um, but of his glory. He revealed the Father to us. And I love this in, um, in John 1, because I'm sure you guys have read John 1 so many times, but it's about how the word became flesh. And so in starting in verse 14, John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, the very heartbeat and mind of God. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, of the word of God's fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, though, he has explained him. So, <clears throat> and in, um, in other places, it says that no one has ever seen God the Father. But Jesus has revealed him to us. And so just as the high priest would say, okay, this is God's will. This is God's heart. Jesus was the physical representation of that, that we could look at him and say, that is God's heart. That is God's will. Because he was God himself. But he, he didn't, well, I'm going to, <clears throat> he didn't speak of his own initiative. He wasn't like, okay, as God the Son, what do I want right now? That is never how Jesus thought. And so, and ugh, I love this. So John 5, 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. So I don't do anything unless I know that that is what the Father's will is, unless I know that that is already what the Father is doing, and I'm just coming along, and I'm saying, okay, God the Father, this is what you're doing, this is what your plan is right now, and I'm coming along and being a part of it. And that's what Jesus did. And so he reveals to us how to be in complete dependence and surrender to God by example, which I think is amazing. So he only does what the Father does. And then in John 12, 49, he says, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So Jesus never did anything unless the Father did it. He never said anything unless the Father said it. And in fact, I didn't have time to go through all this, but <clears throat> if you ever just <clears throat> sorry, want to go through the Gospel of John and the other Gospels too, but John especially, how many times Jesus says, I do not do this of my own initiative. I do not do this of my own initiative. And then there's one time that Jesus specifically says, I do this of my own initiative. He lays down his life. He sacrifices himself. Over and over he says, I do not do this of my own initiative. I did not come up with this plan. I am not doing this uh, you know, I'm seeing what the Father's doing and I'm following along with it in complete surrender. But of my own initiative, I lay down my life. And that's so amazing. Because that is the heart of Jesus. <clears throat> so, and as we were talking about earlier, no one has ever seen the Father. And so in John 14, um, it's, it's funny I know this is completely random, but it's funny in John, like John was written a lot later. So there wasn't, most of these people were already dead. So there wasn't as much um, harm in like revealing someone's name. You know, someone wouldn't get killed for it by Nero or someone. So John calls out people's names a lot more than any other gospel, which is something really interesting to look at. It's just like, you'll read the same story in other gospels and they say one of the disciples and John is like, not Philip. <laughs> Philip was the one who said this. Anyway, so Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because Philip had said, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. And Jesus is like, no, I'm enough for you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that is the ultimate revelation of God's heart and his will to his people was through Jesus Christ. So again, acting as our high priest. <clears throat> so in being the mediator between God and man, you have revealing God's heart to man, and then you have interceding on behalf of man to God. 
And this is where it gets into why we went over the clothing of the high priest. So actually, it'd be easier if I read it from here. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place. So every time that he went from the inner court to the holy place, he was supposed to have that breastpiece of judgment on. For a memorial before the Lord continually, you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So the high priest was supposed to carry this burden of the entire Israelite people, that every time he went into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place where he would offer incense, which again is our prayers to the Lord, when he would offer incense to the Lord and pray and intercede for the sons of Israel, he had their names over his heart. And then he had the Urim and the Thummim over his heart too to symbolize, okay, God, like what is your will for the house of Israel? And so he constantly carried this burden, but whenever he came near the presence of the Lord. And I thought that was just so cool. And it's a picture of Jesus and it's a picture of how we are supposed to be. <clears throat> so if the high priest was supposed to have this burden on him for the house of Israel, whenever he went into the holy place, which was very often, because they did a lot of stuff in the holy place, um, you don't want bread to go bad or anything like that in the holy place. So he was in there a lot and constantly carrying this burden for the Israelites. And so how does Jesus reveal that? And this is, oh, that went too far. This is probably one of my favorite things that I've been meditating on over the past couple weeks. So in Luke 22, you know the story of when Jesus, during the Last Supper, turns to Peter and he's like, you are going to betray me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, never, Lord, I will die for you. But then he actually betrays Jesus three times. But this is one of my favorite verses in this story. And Luke specifically says that Jesus, I love how Jesus reveals his heart to us for Peter, but I think it, it also applies to us. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so Jesus knew that he was going to betray him. And he prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And he prayed for Peter that when he again returned and sought the Lord's face, that he would be able to strengthen his brothers. And so Jesus wasn't filled with disappointment over being betrayed. He wasn't filled with bitterness about being betrayed. Even though it hadn't happened yet, he knew it was about to happen. Instead, he was interceding for Peter. And if Jesus hadn't prayed for him, what would the outcome have been? So, Jesus prayed for Peter, but that was Peter, right? In Romans 8.34, one of like the coolest chapters in the whole Bible, but Paul says, who is the one who condemns? Like, Satan can't condemn you. There is only one judge, and that is Jesus. So, Jesus is either going to condemn you or not condemn you. And so he's like, who is he that condemns? It's Jesus. Christ Jesus is he who died for you. Yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Present tense. Continually going on. That he intercedes. There's not an end 
to this interse- in, to this intercession. So he's like, are you going to be worried about Jesus condemning you? If you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about Jesus condemning you. He's interceding for you. He knows, just like he knew with Peter, what's coming down the road, and he's already prayed about it. And then in Hebrews 7.25, we don't know who the author is, but he says, therefore, he, Jesus, is able to all... Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And when I started meditating on this verse, I was just so blown away by the heart of God. And as I was praying today, um, I'm walking around and it was really hot, so I didn't walk for long. But um, I was praying and I was just thinking um, about Zach's testimony. And if you guys don't know, Zach, before he was my brother-in-law, went through a really hard time with the Lord and was questioning a lot of things and struggling with a lot of things. And he needed some serious breakthrough. And Kate, of course, was one of his best friends at the time. And um, he wasn't the nicest of friends during that time. But he would actually listen to her when he wouldn't listen to a lot of other people. And one time, um, Kate was sharing, and she said, you know, Mary and this other woman who went to our church at the time pray for you every single day. And when they would get together to pray, they would pray for him every single day. And that literally broke him, knowing that someone cared for him that much and loved him that much. It broke him. And that was like a huge turning point of where he just went and like poured out his heart to the Lord. And God has done some amazing things in his life in the past couple of years since then. But it started because he knew someone was praying for him. And why did that affect him so much? It affected him because you don't pray for someone unless you're thinking about them. You don't pray for someone unless you love them. You don't pray for someone unless you want their best. And that's what Jesus does for us. And it's more than just once a day. He lives to make intercession for us. Jesus literally is living to make intercession for us, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our burdens, knowing what crushes us, knowing what fills us with joy. He's living to make intercession for us. And he's able to save forever. Our salvation is rooted and grounded upon a perfect high priest who is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And when we surrender and when we are living in complete dependence on Jesus, he is the one who draws us near to God. He is the one who calls us. He is literally making intercession for us to draw us near to God. And We don't draw near to God apart from Jesus because it's only through him, it's only through Christ that we draw near to God. And that's how we are saved forever. That's how we are held in the palm of his hand and nothing can snatch us away from that since he always lives to make intercession for us. He literally stands in the gap for us 24-7 because that's his heart for us. He didn't just, I mean, I'm saying just in a very sarcastic way. He didn't just die on the cross and raise from the dead and say, cool, you have salvation now. You're on your own. But he's literally the one who is working out our salvation within us. He is the one drawing us to God. He is the one that is drawing us deeper into relationship with him through his prayers for us. And so as I've just been thinking and mulling over that a lot lately, Like, sometimes I'll just be, like, in the middle of a situation and 
blowing it, of course. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, you're already praying for this situation. You've already prayed for me in this situation. Like, when the word of God says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and when temptation does appear that he has already provided a way out, he's provided a way out because he's already been interceding for us for it. And that's amazing. And so, like, I'll just stop and be like, okay, Jesus, what have you been praying for? Like, if I'm in this situation and you already knew it was going to happen, what's been your heart for it? And I think as we seek God's heart for that, that he's really able to come through in a lot of big ways. And I, I think we understand a lot more of his love when we are constantly remembering that we're on his heart. So, Jesus is constantly interceding for us, constantly praying for us. Um, actually, I forgot this. I really love this verse in Isaiah 40. Um, and so, I just felt like I was supposed to share it. But Isaiah 40, starting in verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. And who's the creator? Jesus. The creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. And his understanding is inscrutable. It's beyond comprehension. His understanding is the best. And so keep asking each other for prayer. Like, that's great. And that's literally our job as a royal priesthood. But always remember that the person who understands us, who understands our circumstances, who understands all of history from beginning to end perfectly is already praying for us. So I, I just think that's really cool. But, um, you know. So, <clears throat> Day of Atonement. I, I literally could have, like, written an entire book about this. I mean, not me, because I don't like to write. Someone could write an entire book about the Day of Atonement. And so I, I just had to put, like, random words up. Because that's all that, like, I could get out. So... Day of Atonement. Today, <clears throat> the 10th day of the seventh month, the Jewish calendar. And this is really cool. Actually, I can't remember if it's in Leviticus. It's, it's in chapter 23, if you want to read it. So the Sabbath day, it specifically says you do no work. And then he says, and also on these festival days, I want you to do no work. But then as it talks through the different festivals, it specifically says to do no laborious work, which is interesting. So I guess they were allowed to do more than on the Sabbath, but they weren't supposed to go work out in the fields or anything. They weren't supposed to do any laborious work, except on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the evening on the 9th to the evening of the 10th, it says no work. It is so explicit. It says if including the aliens that are in the land. And if anyone does work, they are cast out. Like, he is serious. No work on the Day of Atonement. So, Day of Atonement. No one is supposed to do any work. The high priest, in all of his priestly garments and robes, comes to the door of the holy place, and he washes himself in water, and then puts on white undergarments and a white tunic. And that's it. And then he sacrifices the bull and the goat. And he goes into the most holy place to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, he, he does incense first to produce a pleasant aroma before he goes in. And then he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat 
and that is to make atonement for the sins of Israel. The bull is to make atonement for himself and his family, and the goat is to make atonement for all of Israel. Now, a bull for just him and his family, but you have to realize he's about to go into the very presence of God. And the way that I explained it to the Sunday school kids was that it's not like God is this angry God, and he's like, oh, you have sin in my presence, zap. But it's God is so holy that if anything other than complete holiness comes into his presence, it just explodes. It has no option than to just explode. So if the high priest comes into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies and he has sin, then he will die. And this isn't in the Bible, but Jewish tradition says that they would go into the, whole, the most holy place with a rope tied around their foot so that if they were struck dead, then they could be dragged out. Because that's how serious it was. The very presence of God, the absolute most holy place in the entire world, in the most holy place. And the priest had to make a huge sacrifice for him and his family for his sins before he could even go in. So anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <clears throat> and it, Never mind. Okay, so he goes beyond the veil. And the veil, again, was actually a lot like the, what's it called? It was a lot like the ephod in that it was colored gold and purple and scarlet. And that is what separated us, everyone in the world, from the very presence of God. It was a veil that was colored gold, purple, and scarlet. So the high priest would go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies. And he, so when he would um, perform the incense, then he would go into the, most holy, to the Holy of Holies and pray on behalf of Israel. And sprinkle the blood to, um, sprinkling something with blood was always to set it apart, to anoint it. When priests were put in, they had blood put on their right ear, their right thumb, and their right big toe. And that was to symbolize that they were completely set apart for the Lord. We could get into that, but we don't have time. Um, so, Day of Atonement. He makes atonement with blood. Making atonement means to, to pay for something on behalf of something, to make it better. You know, if, if I was really mean to my sibling, I could make atonement by buying Jimmy his favorite meal. You know, like I would be making atonement on behalf of what I had done. And so, <clears throat> so the blood was to make atonement, but then... Actually, it wasn't just one goat that they would choose. They actually would choose two goats, and they would only kill one. And the other goat, the high priest would come, and he would speak over the goat all the sins of Israel. And then another person would come and take the goat, which is called a scapegoat. If you guys didn't know where that phrase came from. They would take the scapegoat and lead it into the wilderness and let it go, symbolizing that the sins are far away, which I think is a really cool picture. Um, and during the Day of Atonement, no one was allowed in the holy place while the high priest was doing all this. You know, normally other priests would be allowed in the holy place, but at this time no one would be allowed in, and all of the Israelites and all the priests would be waiting eagerly waiting for the high priest to come out. And there's a lot that he would have to go through and do, and they would all be eagerly waiting to see, is he still alive? Is he going to make it out alive? Has he truly atoned for the sins of Israel this year? Did he find favor in the presence of God? Were, did, did he commit a sin this year that none of us knew about, and now he's dead in the presence of God? So they're all waiting eagerly for him to come out. Um, it's kind of like when Zechariah went and um, made the sacrifice of incense 
and then everyone was waiting for him to come out, it's kind of that same scenario. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, so they couldn't truly have the Day of Atonement at that time. But everyone would be waiting for the high priest to come out. And so I already talked about the no work, and, no, uh, and it was supposed to be complete rest. And what's, what's interesting about the complete rest is God in Leviticus, he doesn't say specifically about the Sabbath. He doesn't even say specifically about the other festivals why they're supposed to rest. I was reading it today. It doesn't say. It just says, on the seventh day God rested, therefore you're supposed to rest. But on the Day of Atonement, it specifically says that they are supposed to do no work to humble themselves. That is how they humble themselves before God, is by not doing any work. So hold on to that. So how does Jesus fulfill this? Well, Jesus is our high priest. And in Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it goes on, and it's really awesome. But when the high priest took off his glorious gold-covered robes, and he washes himself, and he puts on this really humble clothing, Jesus, in the same way, took off his glory and put on this very, very humble clothing of flesh, the weakness of flesh. And then he lived his perfect life. And Hebrews says that, so it, on the day of atonement was the cross. And the veil was torn to symbolize that we could now have complete access to the presence of God. But what was the veil? Because everything in the temple is a copy, it's a picture, it's a shadow of something else. Hebrews says that the veil, and this is why the coloring of the veil was so important, the veil was actually the body of Christ being torn apart. So just as the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, the body, the flesh of Jesus was torn apart. If you ever want to see the passion of, of the Christ, you can see how it was torn apart for us. And that tearing was what allowed us to enter in to the presence of God. And so the coloring of Jesus's body literally matched the color of the veil. And so then the high priest would go through the veil into the most holy place. And it's really cool in Hebrews, it says that, that Jesus didn't just go to a tabernacle that was made with human hands. He went into the very throne room of God. Just like Jesus told the thief, tonight or today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus went to paradise after he died. He literally went to the throne room of God for us because he was the perfect sacrifice. And he was there and then came back. I don't know why he didn't come back. He did because it was important. And so just as the high priest would go into the most holy place, Jesus ascended into the perfect holy place. It wasn't just a picture. It wasn't just a representation. It was the actual most holy place. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And it's interesting because God loves to take things and be like, yes, it means this, but it also means this. So I think that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like the high priest coming out and showing himself to all of Israel. But it also means something else because Hebrews, did I write it down? Really late. Yes, Hebrews 9, 28. 
Hebrews 9.28 specifically says that him coming out as the high priest, that just like the everyone, I should probably just read it, but just like the Israelites were eagerly waiting for the high priest to come out, that is the second coming of Jesus. And that's why this is so important because it means both things. The day of atonement wasn't just one day of Jesus being on the cross. We are literally still in the day of atonement because the high priest has not come back yet. We're still waiting for his second coming. And what were the Israelites supposed to do for the entire day of atonement? Rest. And literally, if they did work on the day of atonement, they were driven out. And I was just like, oh, brain explosion, because that is the perfect rest that we live in now. It wasn't just the one day that Jesus was on the cross. It's literally every day of our entire walk and journey with Jesus. He has done the work. And we humble ourselves by not. Yes, it doesn't mean that you get to sit on the couch eating potato chips, watching old-time miniseries, which I personally would love. Maybe not Perry Mason, but you know. Um, we work hard, but we don't work with our own strength. We work with the strength of Jesus. And my righteousness is filthy rags. Every single day, I need to humble myself by doing no work and saying, Jesus, it's not me, it's you. Every bit of righteousness that is good before you is you working through me. It's you loving through me. It's you thinking through me. It's you speaking through me. Anything that I try to do in and of myself is filthy rags because it completely lacks humility. And I think that that is just so amazing that the Day of Atonement, we literally get to live our entire lives in this one day where we are constantly humbling ourselves before Jesus and saying, it's all about you. It's all about your work on the cross. It's all about your intercession for me. And all I'm going to do is surrender. And all I'm going to do is trust you. And all I'm going to do is live in continual abiding and dependence on you. Because I can't, but you can. So <clears throat> there's actually supposed to be another um, exclamation mark here because I was just really excited about all of them. Um, so Jesus is not just the high priest. He also was the goat. Or if you're going to speak in Day of Atonement terms, he was also the Passover lamb, if you want to speak in Passover terms. But he was the perfect sacrifice. So he's the high priest, and then he's the veil, and then he's also the sacrifice, and he's also the blood being sprinkled to make atonement for everyone. And he's also the one that's in heaven making intercession for us. So he's just all of it. Like, it's just, it, it's all Jesus. And I know I already read it, but he perfectly knows us. He perfectly intercedes for us. You know how sometimes like you can try to share a prayer request with someone and then they pray for you and you're like, thank you, Jesus, for their love. But they didn't really get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, because we're all human. But like Jesus perfectly understands and he perfectly intercedes for us. And he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he humbled himself and put on flesh. He is not a high priest who doesn't get it. He's not a high priest who is like, well, you just stink as a human being. I just, I don't know what to do with you. Like, that's not his attitude. Because he literally walked through every temptation that we'll ever face. And he walked through it perfectly. And so now he has this heart for us of, if you let me live through you, then you can walk through it perfectly too. And so Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near 
with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And when, when we're coming before the presence of God, it's not pride, it's not cockiness, it's confidence. And confidence is completely full of humility. And I think that's so important that when we're like, Jesus, I'm coming boldly before you, I am coming boldly before the throne of grace because it's all about you and it's all about your blood, and it's all about your finished work on the cross, and it's all about how I'm still living in the day of atonement, and it's, it's not about me, but I can be confident in who you are, so I'm going to boldly come before you and ask for this. And so it's not, anyway, so it's not pride, it's not cockiness, it's boldness in who Jesus is. And then he is a high priest who is merciful and faithful. Hebrews 2, 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. And earlier, it says that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And I love that. Like, Jesus, I'm probably going to start crying. Like, Jesus looks at me and my messed up life, and he's like, I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. Because, again, it's all about him. So therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so Jesus is like, every single time you face temptation, every single time you are tempted, to walk in your flesh. Every single time you're tempted to respond in anger or bitterness or frustration or anything, I've been tempted by it. And I walked through it perfectly. So if you let me walk through you, I can lead you in this situation perfectly because he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And so I just, I love this picture of Jesus that it fits into... Again, so many different things where he's the lamb and he's the goat and he's the veil. And like we could go through everything in the temple, which I would need to do a lot more studying for. But like it, it all fits together in him being the high priest because he has planned all of these things for all of eternity. And, and one thing that I think is just so important to remember is that God isn't like, okay, I've created all these things. Now, out of all my creation, what is something that's a good picture of this? Like, he's not like, hmm, of all the relationships that I've created, I'm going to pick fatherhood to show this. He's like, no, 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 like God thought before the foundations of the earth, how do I reveal my heart to people? How do I reveal who I am to people? Okay, I'm going to create families. Okay, I'm going to create friendships. Okay, I'm going to create the temple, and it's going to be like this, and it's going to be these exact colors because he already planned what he was going to do in the future. And so I think that that also, to me, I'm, like, I'm a planner, and that's how I show love to people is I plan things for them. You know, like I love finding the perfect gift for someone or planning like a really special thing for someone, and that's one of the ways that God shows his love for us is he's like, I planned all all of this to reveal to you who I am. And I planned all of this to show you my heart so that your tiny little brains could, in a small way, comprehend his infiniteness. Like, even in heaven, I think for all of eternity, we're going to be learning more about who he is. And we're going to be trying to understand his love more. But God is so particular to show or to try to show us who he is and his love for us. And that, okay, like, I'm going to set up this so that when I tell you I am living to make intercession for you, you're going to get it. And as we, um, as we think about Jesus being the high priest, I think it also deepens our understanding of our role as a royal priesthood, that if Jesus, and I, I think I said this last time, 
But if Jesus is truly living in us, if Jesus is truly living through us, then whoever he is will be revealed through our lives. Imperfectly, but will still be revealed. And if Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, then our lives will be defined by being sacrifices. If Jesus is perfect love, then our lives will be defined by love. Because, or otherwise, either Jesus isn't in us, or we're not letting him live through us. Just one of them. And so I, I love that, that like we get to be priests. And so he's like the perfect high priest. And then we get to carry his heart. We get to carry the names of his church over our heart when we come into his presence and intercede for each other and stand in the gap for each other. And we get to love other people and sacrifice for other people. And because that's who Jesus is, and he just wants to live through us.